Welcome to Act in Line, the podcast of the Acton Institute for the study of religion and liberty. I'm Caroline Roberts, producer and also an occasional host. Before I jump into a summary of the segments featured in this episode, I wanted to ask a favor of you that won't take long at all. If you like this podcast, please swing over to iTunes and leave us a review and rating. The ratings really do help this podcast gain more exposure, and we couldn't produce this podcast without listeners like you. Now for a rundown of the show. First up, we bring John Bodden onto the show, a professor of economics turned rancher in Bozeman, Montana. He's co-founded several organizations for free market environmentalism, including the Property and Environment Research Center, dedicated to harnessing the power of markets and property rights to improve environmental quality. Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez released the Green New Deal resolution this past February, calling for a 10-year mobilization plan, quote, guaranteeing a job with a family-sustaining wage, adequate family and medical leave, paid vacations and retirement security to all people of the United States. And just last week, Ocasio-Cortez released a new video imagining a utopian future where her Green New Deal has saved the planet. John joins us today to address the environmental concerns raised by Ocasio-Cortez, as well as show how free markets could tackle them. On the second segment, Acton's Dan Huger will be speaking with Brad Berzer, a professor of history at Hillsdale College, to talk about the life of Andrew Jackson. If you want to read more about the topics in this episode, check out all the related articles in our show notes. Posted every Wednesday when our episodes release at blog.acton.org. That's blog.acton, A-C-T-O-N dot O-R-G. They told us that we had 12 years left to cut our emissions in half, or hundreds of millions of people would be more likely to face food and water shortages, poverty, and death. 12 years to change everything. How we got around, how we fed ourselves, how we made our stuff, how we lived and worked, everything. The only way to do it was to transform our economy, which we already knew was broken since the vast majority of wealth was going to just a small handful of people and most folks were falling further and further behind. It was a true turning point. Lots of people gave up. They said we were doomed. But some of us remembered that as a nation, we'd been in peril before. The Great Depression, World War II, We knew from our history how to pull together to overcome impossible odds. And at the very least, we owed it to our children to try. Those are the words of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the congresswoman from New York, who has recently introduced and sponsored what she calls the Green New Deal, a far-reaching, even utopian economic and environmental program that she tells us we must adopt because we have only 12 years left to cut emissions in half and save the economy. I'm your host, John Caritas, and today we are welcoming John Bodden, who is chairman of the Foundation for Research on Economics and the Environment in Bozeman, Montana. We're going to talk about the Green New Deal today. Welcome to the podcast, John. I'm delighted to be talking with you again, John. You know, uh, the timing of this uh, AOC, as she's called, video was pretty interesting. It came out last week, and just two weeks earlier, you published on your website a commentary which you've titled Responsible Liberty, Sustainable Ecology, and Modest Prosperity Foster Wholesome Lives. And in that commentary, 
you remind us that America harbors the fragile trinity of liberty, ecology, and prosperity. It's recurrently under assault by authoritarians of several stripes, people who demand ever more government control. They identify or manufacture threats to justify it. And you go on to say that the current threat demands transformational actions mandated by fines, laws, and regulations. The Green New Deal is its name. So let's start by—I'd like to get your reaction to the video. It um, strikes me as uh, uh, ambitious, if it's, if it's nothing else, but it's also quite alarmist, is it not? Well, it is. On the other hand, I welcome it, because it is a very, very condensed version of essentially the ideal of progressive authoritarians— who see climate change as a wonderful opportunity to regulate the behavior of other people. These are people of superior, progressive, liberal authoritarians. They seem to have a, or they believe, or act as though they believe that they have a monopoly on virtue and understanding. And the specter of climate change gives them a license to impose their vision on other people. And so it may be a 10-year window or a 12-year window, but we have a very, very short time to adjust our behavior, our culture, and our economy to conform to their ideals. I want to cite something else you wrote in which you say that in a earlier commentary this year, you say the great majority of those favoring Green New Deal regulations and mandates are substantially disconnected from the working world and nature. If I may, I'd like to also mention the fact that your organization, Bozeman, free, and we'll put a link to the uh, site on our on our blog when we do the show notes, has for many years sponsored seminars bringing people into Bozeman, which is a beautiful, unique place, federal judges, law and economics professors, religious leaders, and social entrepreneurs, expose them to the ideas of free market environmentalism. And I, I must say that I was privileged to attend some of these seminars. I visited your ranch, which is near uh, where you held the seminars. Your ranch, it seems to me, is a good example of how a free market approach and a lot of elbow grease can really transform uh, the environment for the better and do and produce those things your your trinity of values responsible liberty sustainable ecology and modest prosperity so talk a little bit about if you would how those values were made concrete and what you and uh, your wife Ramona Maritzbaden two retired professors and now ranchers achieved on that ranch well let me let me back up just for a little bit um, my wife, Ramona, and I both come from a very long line of people in American agriculture. And so we are not people who, you know, decided that we were going to buy some, some agricultural land as a playground. But rather, our heritage was that of, of, of successful, relatively small-scale, meaning hundreds, not thousands of acres, uh, farming and ranching, raising livestock, raising crops, or irrigating, and so forth. And that was what we grew up in. And so 
I, when I was a graduate student uh, at Indiana University, where my field was economic anthropology, which is sort of an, an odd background, um, I was working trying to explain the success of the Hutterian Brethren. These are people uh, who came to the United States just after the U.S. Civil War uh, from Europe, and they were uh, collectivists. They were they were Christian communists, basically. And they established communes throughout our part of the West, from the Dakotas West uh, to, as far as Idaho. And they were successful. And what could possibly explain that? And so I had the wonderful opportunity of driving around this part of the world, interviewing Hutterites on 25, I believe it was, colonies, and trying to explain their success. And essentially... What they did was understand the importance of linking rational individual behavior with social behavior of their of their small groups. Well, in doing this, I based out of Bozeman um, and then traveled through five states and and two provinces. And um, in 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 doing this, I saw our ranch. Uh, initially in 1967, and it was a, it's a small part of the original Gallatin Ranch Company, but it had been in an estate for a long time, with not with owners not on the land, and as a result, of course, it became ever more run down. Stuff that should have not been farmed was farmed, and it meaning steep slopes, so it was filled with gullies. It was terribly overgrazed, and hence it wasn't worth much. And as a result of its decrease in value due to bad management, I had the opportunity to borrow money and buy the ranch and begin its restoration. And John, you've seen uh, you've seen that restoration, and uh, we've I restored a spring creek that had been destroyed in about 1900, and it's now a very very productive fishery. We have, well, uh, we have so many elk in the place that it's that they're a terrible nuisance, doing damage to fences and eating crops and so forth. So there's a, there's a downside to being successful in having wildlife habitat. Um, but, but at any rate, it's been a, a labor of love, and Ramon and I really have enjoyed our success. We walk around it nearly every day, um, and. What what can I say? We have oh, and by the way, we take no government subsidies, and we're under essentially no government regulation. Well, let's talk a little bit about that. We mentioned in the free market movements the centrality of property rights, and one of the values that free tutored us all while we we're at their seminars was explaining the importance of secure property rights and economic freedom to the efficient and sensitive use of environmental resources, as you describe it. So it would seem to me that that is exhibit A of how this works uh, within a regime of secure property rights to, so you can hold on to what you have. Why do you, how do you explain the enthusiasm for a, a thing like the Green New Deal, which has won dozens and dozens of supporters in Congress, presidential candidates on the Democrat side at least, what is missing from the public debate about these things uh, when you get these utopian visions 
that promises everything without counting the cost of it. What, how do you explain the public opinion and the support for these policies? Well, I, I think it's relatively easy to understand it. The Green New Deal is a collage of fantasies about the way the world should work. The presumption that we can somehow move to a totally decarbonized economy and environment within a decade or even 20 years or 25 years is, is it just basically is, is just a great example of detachment from the way the world actually works. She's really proposing a deindustrialization of the economy and uh, backtracking on things like higher living standards and life expectancy. I mean, you just can't wave a magic wand at these things. They pretend away the realities of the way the, the world works. Let me, let me move back a bit. I, I want to make sure that people understand that we, meaning Ramona and I, are very, very sympathetic to some of the goals the express goals of the Green New Deal, in a sense, that, John, when you were visiting our place, I'm sure you noticed that we have a substantial amount of evidence of using solar power and wind power on our ranch. But we do so where, when and where it makes sense. For example, I built what might be the, <laughs> the country's only solar-powered big bale feeder, we, we feed steers and we, and we feed lambs uh, on, with big bales that average 1,250 pounds each. Well, these obviously can't be handled by, by humans, and people normally use big machines to distribute the hay, to break it up, spread it out where the livestock can eat it, and, and which, which works fine. Uh, but it, that, you, that means you start engines in the winter, of course, which is diesel engines are, are, uh, don't like cold weather, and you then go out every morning, at least once a day, and you distribute hay, the livestock come and eat it. Well, I, I had a different idea, and that is, we have these big bales, why not build a feeder that, that basically makes this hay available to the steers and to the sheep as they want it? So essentially... Uh, we load this thing with a big bale, again, more than half a ton, and then use solar power uh, to run a hydraulic system that elevates the bale on a slope such as they eat it, it slides down. It's pretty simple, uh, and it makes sense. And we, we economize on our time in the morning. We economize on diesel fuel. And we certainly make it easier on the machinery to not have to run when it's 20 below zero. There are uh, financial payoffs to doing, it, you know, to doing a good job, but also there's huge psychological benefits to, to walking around the place each day and seeing the system operate in a sustainable manner. One of the things that free marketers talk about are economic incentives driving conservation. I wonder if you could point to one or two good examples of how a free market approach, rather than you know yet another federal regulation, has produced outstanding benefits uh, for natural resources, wildlife, preserving that environment that people want to live in and, and uh, move closer to. Well, let me give you an example. The Gallatin Valley 
is famous worldwide for having this wonderful fishery. We have famous spring creeks that people uh, come to visit. Spring Creek means this water's coming out at clear water, drinkable water coming out 52 to 56 degrees in the heat of the summer and flowing through uh, channels that uh, natural channels and some pools and sometimes the pools are augmented. Uh, there are a number of companies, and, and if you look in the yellow pages in Bozeman, if there still are yellow pages, uh, it will show that there are a number of companies, small companies, that develop fisheries, and they often restore and improve sometimes degraded streams. And so that's that's one wonderful example of how, how the market works. And these companies will go on to a ranch like yours or someone else someone else's and uh, work to restore the fishery. Yeah, they, they will measure the flow of the water, and often it's been degraded by farming practices, uh, by uh, livestock you know, wading in the streams and so forth, and they will come up with relatively simple ways. Well, the, uh, for example, putting rocks and logs and so forth in the channel to make it meander in certain ways and so forth, and fencing the livestock out, and so letting nature restore it. And then the ranch has a value not only for the agricultural production, but also the great luxury benefits of having it, having just very, very nice fisheries. And ours is one such place. We also have the immense benefit of having something um, like a mile and a quarter or thereabouts of a privately built canal the Klein-Smith Canal, now called the West Gallatin Canal. Any, almost, there is a general rule, almost anything worth, worth irrigating was irrigated by privately built canals. And it wasn't until the Bureau of Reclamation was established in 1902 that the federal government became heavily involved in building canals, many of which have very, very negative environmental consequences. I want to wrap up, if I could, with a question to you about the cost of addressing climate change, global warming, all the various proposals that have been forwarded. You view climate as a serious subject. How do you view the whole question of environmental policy as it relates to climate change? Well, one of the things, one of the features that's neglected when people discuss climate change is the fact that it's not all negative. I mean, it's very time and place specific. If you, for example, live on an island uh, where it's five feet above sea level, you'd be really quite concerned about, about rising sea levels, even if it's only you know, a few millimeters a year. Eventually, that, that island's going to be in trouble. Uh, in contrast, if you live in Montana, which has experienced more warming than any state other than Alaska, it's almost an unambiguous benefit. Uh, for example, um, spring comes about two weeks, ten, week, 10 days to two weeks earlier than it did 30 years ago. And that means the grass comes on earlier. And in the same way, snow comes a bit later. And further, only a few decades ago, we would expect to have weeks of 20, 30 below zero. That's extremely rare now. In fact, this 
this past winter was the was the coldest in a long time. And people said, oh, my God, it's just like it was 30 or 40 years ago. Isn't this horrible? It's much different now. Uh, you have less winter kill of livestock. You don't have to feed nearly as much when it's uh, 20 above and when it's 20 below. Uh, baby animals have a much higher survival rate if when they're born in late, late, late winter or early spring. Uh, machinery runs better and lasts longer when it's isn't started when it's 30 below zero. Uh, there's just lots and lots of benefits to it, and these are not discussed. Now, there's some there's some costs as well, of course. On net, there are more benefits than there are costs to global warming as it affects Montana. Aridity has not increased. In other words, precipitation has not decreased. And we have many, many fewer problems of extremely cold weather. Uh, we don't do we do not have livestock or wildlife dying at the same rate. They don't have to eat as much. Uh, it's just and fuel costs are much less for heating the house. And it's much better for machinery not to be started when it's 30, 40 below zero. Uh, there are a few costs, uh, but generally we're ahead. Well, yeah, and that points to the problem you get into with one-size-fits-all sweeping uh, solutions that don't take into account the regional or local particularities of this problem, and uh, which would uh, undoubtedly cause conflict and other issues uh, when faced with new regulations. John, uh, I want to thank you for coming on uh, Act Align today. It's been a pleasure talking to you, as always. And uh, hope to have you back on the show soon. In the face of fiscal irresponsibility, soaring deficits, sweeping new healthcare regulations, and an uncontrollable national debt, the Acton Institute offers a fresh and unique perspective. In addition to common demands for limited government and lower taxes, Acton believes that liberty is best preserved when man's God-given dignity is recognized and respected. Only when our rights are rooted in something deeper, our intrinsic value as image bearers of God, are they absolutely secure. Please join Reverend Robert Sirico, co-founder and president of Acton Institute, and other supporters and friends of Acton on Wednesday, May 1st at the Detroit Athletic Club for a luncheon and a special keynote address on the moral and practical problems with resurgent socialism given by Reverend Sirico. To save your spot, register today at acton.org events. Welcome. My name is Dan Huker, librarian and research associate at the Acton Institute. Today, my guest is Brad Berzer. He is the Russell Amos Kirk Chair in History at Hillsdale College and co-founder and senior contributor at the Imaginative Conservative. Brad and I will be discussing the life and legacy of President Andrew Jackson in his most recent book, In Defense of Andrew Jackson. Brad, welcome to Acton Line, and thanks for speaking with us. Of course, it's always great to talk to you, and I love doing anything with Acton, so thank you very much. Oh, that's that's good to hear. And what you should all know about Brad is that he is, he is you know, in addition to, you know, his illustrious titles, is like one of the nicest guys you will ever meet, so. <laughs> uh, likewise, Dan. Thank you. Still honored you were one of my students. So. Oh, no, great it was job. a great, uh, Brad was a professor of history of mine when I was at Hillsdale College. And I'd like to begin by talking about sort of biographies in general. You're really an expert in the media 
them, having written J.R. Tolkien's uh, Sanctifying Myth, Understanding Middle-Earth, Sanctifying the World, The Augustinian Life and Mind of Christopher Dawson, American Cicero, The Life of Charles Carroll, Russell Kirk, American Conservative, and now In Defense of Andrew Jackson. I I think you've done um, an outstanding job with capturing sort of the spirit of Jackson in this biography, and it reminded me of some of the classic short biographies that I really treasure. Uh, Gertrude Himmelfarb's biography of Lord Acton, Lord Acton, a study in conscious and politics, and also uh, Stefan Zieg's uh, biography of Montaigne. It's sort of those those short getting to the sort of the center of the person. And the way you sort of frame that is explained in the title itself, which is In Defense of Andrew Jackson. Why does Andrew Jackson, you know, president, general, and the original Democrat uh, need a defense? Yeah, Dan, that's, uh, let me try and answer that in two parts. So the first part is Jackson came to me very easily, and I was surprised by that because, as you know, having had me in class before, I have never been hugely pro-Jackson. In fact, I've typically taught him as a, a rather nasty figure in American history. But I, when I started reading him, one of the things, really reading him for who and what he was, I was just shocked at how honest he was. Unbelievably violent and brutal, but also just honest. And I, I think his DNA is almost equal bits honesty and brutality. And I don't necessarily respect the brutality, of course, but I was really taken with his honesty. And so it was hard not to get to know him and kind of like him and admire him simply because he was so open about his own views. In terms of the, the title, I wish I could take credit for that, but I can't. That was really my editor's uh, decision to go with that title. I wanted something far more academic and probably nearly as marketable. Uh, I just didn't like – I thought the idea of saying it was a defense really kind of just immediately – challenge someone. And I I was a little worried about what my fellow academics might think, which I don't think was necessarily the best way to approach it, but it's hard to get out of some of those habits. And uh, in the end, I like defense. And I think this is a credit to him in some ways, but he is such a mythological figure that he has been able to absorb so much of the good and the bad of his era and become a real representation for both the good and the bad. And you refer to him very early in the book as the first truly American president. Uh, how does Jackson the man demonstrate that break with the colonial past that, you know, those earlier figures in American history really don't? You know, I, part of that, and I, that was actually my original title, Dan, was First American President. And uh, I'm, I'm not sure that would have worked either. But I, one of the things I tried to get at was just to understand him as an American stereotype or an American myth for good and ill. And as I was writing the book, I couldn't help but think John Wayne. And I'm thinking about the searchers and especially the searchers, but also thinking about Stagecoach and Fort Apache. There's something in Andrew Jackson's character that's different than the genteel Washington or the genteel Thomas Jefferson or James Monroe or the very stuffy John Adams. You know, there's something in him or John Quincy Adams. There's just something in him that makes him distinctively American in a very frontier way that the Virginians and New Englanders just didn't have. And so that's what I was really trying to get at, that not that he was the first person born on American soil, but he was really the first person not to have been deeply influenced by our immediate connections to Europe and especially to England. And the fact that he came to the presidency with such a hatred of England 
that I think also kind of defined him, but it gave him a mythic stereotype in the way that we might think of Daniel Boone or Davy Crockett or you know, fictionally Natty Bumpo. There's just a lot in common there with that frontier type. You you mentioned repeatedly in the book of him being an exemplar of what you call Republican virtues. Um, what What is that? What is that unique? How would you characterize those Republican virtues? You know, that was something that I absolutely loved in what I found, and I was surprised by it as well. So we always, and you said this as well, Dan, we always associate him as the first Democrat. And I had, going into the book, I had thought the exact same thing, and that's how I've taught him for almost 20 years. But I was really shocked at how often he, well, let me put it this way, he never refers to himself as a Democrat uh, that I could ever find in any place. He always talks about his allegiance to the Republic and how he's a Republican. And I realized that the Democratic Party springs out of him, so it's, it's logical that we would associate him with the Democratic Party. But I really found that first and foremost was his concern that he was being a hero in the old, ancient, virtuous sense of the Roman Republic and giving everything he had to the American Republic. That, you know, even at his close to his death, when his allies said, we'd like to build you a monument, he, he refused. He said, absolutely not. You know, presidents don't need that. I, I'm a citizen, and I want to be remembered for my republic, not for my power. And I, you know, that, that's amazing to me. You can't even imagine, even a good guy, I think, like Ronald Reagan, you can't imagine him saying something like that. I'm sure he was very pleased to have a library and all of these other things that go with that. So Jackson is just very much a 19th century character in that, in that way. Now, Jackson's life is powerfully shaped uh, by women, in particular, his mother, Elizabeth, and his wife, Rachel. Um, what was that sort of influence, and how was that formative for Jackson? Yeah, yet another thing, Dan, that I found fascinating. I, I knew that he had always had good relations with women, but I had no, how, I had no idea how far that went. So he absolutely revered his mother. His mother was everything to him. And then when he married Rachel, she became everything to him. You know, they never had any of their own children. And I think that for Jackson, his world really revolved in the old, very Scotch-Irish, but also kind of medieval sense. It revolved around the protection of women and his wife, Rachel, it's pretty stunning that hardly anything's been written about her. She was a fascinating person, and I think his equal intellectually, certainly. And she was his, you know, not just his best friend, but really his partner in the way that maybe in that generation, we only think of Abigail and John Adams as having that kind of relationship. But it's very clear that Andrew Jackson had that with Rachel, too. And it wasn't just them. Uh, from what I could tell, you know, at least the 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 interviews that we have left with his former slaves, uh, he often, when he went to Washington, D.C., he would leave one of his female slaves in charge of everything. And you know, she thought very highly of him, her. He was always incredibly judicious to her, never abusive in any, in any way at all. And we also know that he treated even prostitutes uh, within Nashville with great respect. So there was truly something about him. And that's why I mentioned earlier, Dan, and I don't know if you've seen the movie or if our, uh, the listeners have, but the 1939 movie Stagecoach with John Wayne, where uh, you know, he is on this stagecoach out in the Southwest, and he treats the upper-class woman exactly the same as the prostitute, uh, Johnny Ringo, as his character. It's just such a brilliant John Ford movie and a portrayal of American life. 
And that's that's what I kept thinking of, for better or worse, as I was writing about Andrew Jackson and women. I kept thinking, my gosh, this is Johnny Ringo from Stagecoach. Well, and and there's, there's a dark side to that, too. A lot of that brutality you alluded to earlier um, that characterized his, his early political career and a lot of his personal life, a lot of that is animated by that chivalrous instinct and, uh, and a, a desire to defend you know, the honor of, in particularly his wife. Um, what are, you know, could you share with our listeners maybe one of those, one of those times, one of those famous duels uh, that he gets involved with? Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right, Dan. This is the darker side. There's no question about that. And he, uh, I mean, I think there are times that he actually sought out someone who would criticize someone he loved so he could fight them. <laughs> I, mean, I, I would not be shocked by that at all. And the dueling, another thing that surprised me, and I should have known this a little bit better because of my own study of the Civil War in the South, but the dueling was very class-based, and it had so many rituals to that I, I had always kind of imagined in a Western gunfight, two guys just show up and start shooting at each other. I had no idea that you have to have a second and that you have to choose weapons and you have to get a place and everything has to be agreed and there have to be witnesses. <laughs> and, and legally, it makes sense, too, that you would have all of that going on. But I think just from a cultural standpoint, just to have that whole ritual, that's just wild to think about. It, it reminds me a lot, though this would never have been an influence on on Jackson, but it definitely reminds me a lot of some of the Viking Wergeld, you know, the things that were going on in the Middle Ages and how you would honor, um, obviously coming from a Scotch-Irish perspective, but there's no doubt that it, it is very medieval, and yet mixed with some kind of Calvinist predestinarianism, too, uh, in all of that, because Jackson was a pretty serious Presbyterian and certainly loved Calvin and the Scottish tradition, um, uh, so Knox and others. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you mentioned at one point in the book, and I'll just I'll just quote here that uh, that we'll begin uh, with the quote. Uh, Jackson was a doer rather than a thinker. He had given long and hard thought to military matters, family, friendship, law, republics, and Christianity, but was always more comfortable living by a few well-crafted Stoic and Republican maxims than by an overactive mind. Uh, end quote. That. Reverence for for Knox and Calvin and that Presbyterian heritage. How how did Jackson think through and process that? You know, as as someone who's primarily known as a man of action, what was that reflective side with his religious faith? So he had actually served in the House of Representatives and the Senate, and he had been a judge. So he had experienced all three branches of government, uh, obviously then going on into the executive. And it really, the executive suited his temper. He did not like the debates in Congress. He didn't like the patience that he needed to be a judge. Those were all things he thought were good things, but not for him. That, that's what I meant when he was much more of a doer than he was a thinker. But he also, believe it or not, did think deeply from time to time. And ultimately, I think those deep thoughts kind of shaped themselves into maxims that he lived by, pretty simple things that he believed as a code of honor. But he got a lot of that love, especially for the Presbyterianism and for Calvin and Knox. He really got that mother who was a very serious and devout Presbyterian and had assumed that Andrew would be the one of all of her children who would go on into the ministry. So they had, they never had much money. They were definitely poor Scotch-Irish, but the little money they did have, they saved up so that Jackson could go to seminary. And that never happened, but that was the goal. And then when he marries Rachel, 
you know, the best evidence is actually that they had a Catholic wedding, which is just totally bizarre, uh, and then got married as Presbyterians. But they, you know, I think that for him, especially the fact that he thought so highly of Rachel and that she thought so highly of Knox and of Calvin, that was enough for him. So he really dedicated the last eight years of his life after Rachel died. He really dedicated those years. So after the presidency and after Rachel, he dedicated those to just studying scripture. And I would never say he was a great theologian, but probably better than most of us, <laughs> you know, and really understanding his faith, I, I think that was very important to him at the end of his life. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, yeah, the whole the whole episode of the Catholic wedding was, was an amazing part of the book. And they were married, was it in Mexico? Well, they had gone down to Spanish territory. Okay. And so Jackson was never, interestingly enough, despite being super Calvinist, he never had an anti-Catholic prejudice. He didn't like a lot of the rituals that went along with Catholicism, but not necessarily the religious ones. He didn't like the aristocratic manners that the the Spanish and the French brought to it. Um, So he, of his day and age, he's actually really tolerant uh, in all kinds of ways, and shockingly so, especially given his reputation. But, you know, I have to admit, Dan, the whole Catholic wedding, um, I found the evidence for that. I'm not the first to look at that evidence. Most other Jackson scholars have dismissed it and said that it's probably hearsay. But I was pretty convinced by looking at the evidence that given the time period and given the kind of anxiety Nashville and the Presbyterians would have had there about Rachel having previously been married, that I'm not surprised or I I'm in the minority on this, but I do think that the Catholic wedding happened. This is Brad speculating. And this is part of the work that historians do, is constantly revisiting these sources and interrogating things anew. One of the things that was the other striking thing that I thought, you know, Acton's listeners would particularly be interested in was um, Jackson's sort of conception of political economy and economics. And you mentioned in your foreword having attended... uh, a course uh, taught by Larry White on sort of Jacksonian economics. And what, what can you tell the listeners about, about where Jackson came down on sort of the economic issues of his day and what animated him in his thinking? Oh, sure. That's fun to talk about, Dan. Because for me, that's so tied up into personal my personal life, too, not just with Larry White, but that's when I met Father Sirico as well back in the early 90s, very early 90s, yeah, right on the edge of the 80s there. Uh, yeah, Larry White was teaching a course. In fact, I got to, to work with him two years in a row at the Institute for Humane Studies summer seminars. And uh, Larry had just done a really interesting book on radical Jacksonianism, the works of William Leggett, who was one of the great editors of his day. So I got interested in it way back then, you know, just right out of college for me in my first year of graduate school. I was very interested in Jacksonian political economy, but I didn't know if that political economy, which we would now call radically libertarian, that would not have been the term then, of course, but now, uh, I didn't know if that was isolated to just a few individuals within Jackson's administration or if that was Jackson. And what I came to to find in my own work on this biography was that 
Jackson pretty much shared all the views of the more extreme free market people, guys I would consider the good guys at the time, but really some of the first free market economists in the United States. One that I became just very taken with was a guy by the name of Amos Kendall. And I'd heard his name before, but I had no idea what a powerful figure he was in Washington. You know, And talk about draining the swamp. I mean, this is a guy who went in in 1829, 1830, and just reform civil service in every way imaginable during his years there. And really, they, you know, we call this now, and I hate this, we call this the spoils system as if it was something bad. But you know, Jackson pretty much went into office saying, you know, I expect everybody who comes in to work for me to work as hard as you can. And then when the job is done, you go home and you don't make a career out of this. Right? This is public service. And if you are serving your life in Congress or in the bureaucracy, you've misunderstood the republic. (laughs) You know, that that for Jackson, that was not only in the way you serve government, but it came down to we need small business. We need entrepreneurs. We need a dynamic economy. We don't need public money for public works, and we don't need a big centralized bank. We need competition. So Jackson, I think sometimes because he had a good economic sense, but mostly because he had a strong moral sense. I think he really believed in competition and honesty in business, and he did not see how it would be possible for government to get involved and be honest. Um, he actually gave us the language of parasites and laborers. You know, I, I think we often identify that with more radical types in the 20th century, but that was the kind of language. You're either a producer or a parasite. That's the kind of language Jackson used. Lord Atkin famously said that great men are almost always bad men. And President Jackson was a man of enormous failings. And we've talked about those a little bit, but also sort of an undeniable greatness. And you conclude your book by presenting us with Jackson's farewell address. Um, What is it in Jackson's parting words that you see as sort of a, a great example of his enduring wisdom for us today? Yeah, you know, it's funny, Dan, that that address, and I was so glad that Regnery printed that because that cost them quite a bit of extra money to put that in. And I, I you know, all, all credit to them for doing that. Uh, I just, I think it's really important because I mean, obviously we always focus on Washington's farewell. We focus on Eisenhower's, but sometimes those farewell addresses just nail it. And I thought Jackson understood his time and the problems of his time just beautifully. And yet you're right, Dan, there are some really bad things in his life. Obviously, his treatment of the the five Southern tribes and his removal act. I mean, you can explain this, but you can't really justify it. It's, you know, we can understand why he did it, but it ended up just being nasty. And the fact that he didn't deal better, I think, with the slavery issue when he could have, those are all issues that I think he really failed on. I don't think that's just our presentism. The fact that there were people at the time making those arguments indicates he could have made those arguments as well. But yeah, there are things about him where, especially in that farewell address, where he's explaining these are our dangers in the Republic. This is what will pull us apart. And this is what can hold us together. He doesn't say anything new. His reminder is the very Washingtonian reminder, George Washington, that really the best thing to do is live a virtuous life. And this is what will allow the Republic to continue. You know, it's not about self-interest. It's not about pursuing your own thing. It's about understanding your self-interest, but within the context of the race publica of the republic. And I just, I found that beautiful, a great reminder. Again, nothing, nothing innovative, nothing new, just a really great reminder of things that 
any classically educated or liberally educated person that that generation would have understood. And I think fully understood that these are the kinds of things we have to do to prevent this kind of bias here or this bigotry here to get the, to allow this thing to get out of hand. We have to stop it. So it's a great prophetic warning. No, it was a great note to end the book on, and it's a great note for us to end the interview on. Um, Brad, thank you so much for being with us here on Act and Line. Thanks, Dan. Thank you for listening today. Our team here at Acton wouldn't be able to produce Act in Line without you, and we would love to hear any feedback you have for this show. Help us make an even better podcast and email us at actinline at acton.org. Also, last but not least, don't forget to swing over to our website at acton.org slash line and subscribe to this podcast. We're available on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts.